Thank you for listening to this Podcast One production. Available on Apple Podcasts and Podcast One. Each week when you join me, Podcast One, you're going to chase down our goals, overcome adversity, and set you up for a better tomorrow. Come on this journey with me. And welcome back to Creating Confidence. I'm so glad that you're here. We've got such a great show today that really, really resonated with me and helped me immensely. And I, I really think it's going to help you out a lot too. No matter what it is you do for work, if you don't work, it's something, it's just a, a life scale that I don't think we think about a lot. Um, mental strength is something that. I know I've just taken for granted or didn't think it was a discipline that you could learn or develop. And my guest today is really going to work with us on developing mental strength. And it's much more simplistic than you might think that it would be. I certainly did. But before we get to my amazing guest, I wanted to start by giving you guys an update on my TED Talk. I had my first meeting with the executive head of the TED Salon, and we discussed my idea, we discussed my title, and he loved it. And I was so excited because only a month ago when I was submitting to apply, well, actually, as I had said, this has been going on for over a year, but in this round, because there had been many rounds, I had written an entire TED Talk. I really loved it. I was super excited about giving it, and it ended up that it, you know, it had to go through layers of approval when it got to that finer, final layer. The man that I spoke to this week, he ended up saying, you know, it's just not edgy enough. It just, it's, it's a little bit too basic, I guess, is what his thoughts were. So I was really hoping that after all that work I had put in, that this one he would be excited about. And he was. So, you know, again, just a reminder that the first time we try something doesn't mean it's the only shot we're going to get or that it is the right shot. Because I do believe now that I've gone back. I've redone this thing. I've worked on it for over a year, you know, that I really am on that right path. And I think we're going down that right road. So I think you're going to be so excited when you hear it in October. I know I can't wait to give it. Uh, But I'm just now in this, you know, phase one where I've gotten approval. Now they're going to have me move forward. And over the next two weeks, I get to work with one of their trainers that gives you some advice and some direction. But ironically, our guest today, who I met a couple of months ago, she actually lives in Florida. So I was able to go to the Keys to meet her face to face. And we were working on a project in New York together. And we have a very close mutual friend. So we actually hit it off and uh, we've become good friends. She's an amazing woman. And when I was thinking about my TED Talk over the past couple of weeks, I decided to reach out to her, and there's a very good reason for that. Her TED Talk has over 10 million views. It's one of the most viewed TED Talks that there are, and she obviously knows this space very well. So I reached out to her and, and just looking for a little insight, any direction she could give me, things that she thought were important, and she let me know the title is the most important thing because if you have a bland title or just another random title, people aren't even going to bother opening the talk up. So I put a lot of time into focusing on what is that title, how, you know, and it's no different, I'm thinking to myself, than an email subject line, right? When we reach out to someone via email and they hear from people all of the time, you need to create something eye-catching, or maybe it's when you're sending something to someone's office to get their attention. You know, it's all about using your unique individuality and your flair to own who you really are, because when you do that, you separate yourself from the sea of mediocrity. And I will tell you, that is definitely what I'm going for. We're sure going to help it work. It works out that way. So I want to tell you a little bit about my guest today, Amy Morin. She's unbelievable. She's a psychotherapist. She Her book has been translated into over 30 different languages, over 20-something countries. She's an internationally best-selling author. Inc. named her one of the top 100 speakers in the country. She's a contributor for Success Magazine, been in Forbes. She's been everywhere. And really, that TED Talk that she gave was the catalyst. And even before that, an article that she had written, I believe, for Success Magazine went viral as well. And the topic was exactly the one we're talking about today, which is the name of her book, 13 Things Mentally Strong People Don't Do. And so often, 
I know that I do. I don't know about you, but I focus on what else can I add to my life? You know, should I work out more? Should I make more, you know, proactive business calls? Should I follow up more? Things that I can add on my to-do list to improve and to get ahead. But Amy's really flipped things around here. And instead of focusing so much on what else can I add, she's focusing on what can I strip away? And that's not something that I had spent a lot of time thinking about, but she makes an amazing case for it. She's a living example of it. And when you see the level of success and the catalyst that she's been for so many people to achieve mental strength, you'll see that this recipe works. So I want to just quickly walk you through the 13 things that Amy has taught all over the world that mentally strong people do not do and challenging each of us to think about, do we do any of these and which ones are we ready to strip out of our lives? Because when we do, we're going to set ourselves up to be mentally strong, improve our strength. And I mean, she's got the rule book on it. It works. It's tried and tested. So the first thing that mentally strong people don't do is waste time feeling sorry for themselves the pity party. There is no time and space for feeling bad for yourself if you want to be mentally strong, and that is completely within your power. Uh, Number two is giving away your power. So many people, I I know people like this, that will say, oh, so-and-so makes me so mad. Oh, so-and-so won't let me get ahead. You know, blaming and pointing at others is actually giving your power to those people. I believe in this so wholeheartedly. You know, so just being aware first of all if you're doing it and that bad habit. Oh my gosh, that's a a brutal one. But don't give people power over you. Claim it back for yourself. Number 3, shy away from change. And you know, I learned earlier uh, in one of my other podcast episodes when I was um, talking to a psychotherapist, she was talking about change is really a loss. And that's why it's so hard for people. And when you start to embrace that, okay, change is a loss, but it doesn't mean it's something better isn't on the other side. I need to let go of one thing in order to expand and get to that other place, which I think is so true. So um, mentally strong people do not shy away from change and you shouldn't either. Uh, number four, squander energy on things they cannot control. So, you know, sitting around pontificating, worrying about things. It doesn't solve any problems and it is wasting your energy. So you need to come up with a strategy, whether it's going to be that you schedule a time of day for 10 minutes where you write down the things you're worried about, but you've got to figure out a way to reframe this so that you're not randomly spending time and energy just wondering and worrying. That is a complete downward spiral. Okay, number five, they don't worry about pleasing everyone. And I know for some people this is harder to do than for others, but you realize that making choices that disappoint or upset others takes courage. Living an authentic life requires you to act according to your values. And Amy talks about making a list of your values and what's important to you and prioritizing those so that you can cross-reference things about you know what, what's important to you, what means something to you versus what other people are asking you to do. And, you know, taking advantage of the word no, for sure. Number six, fear taking risks. So risks can be scary. I Gosh knows I have been so afraid anytime I take a major risk, whether it was when I got fired and I decided to write my first book or, you know, anytime I pivoted my business as an entrepreneur and trying to figure out new ways to diversify revenue streams, all these things are really scary. However, the longer I go in this, the more I realize when you're feeling fear, it's actually a green light that means go and go faster because you're on to something. It's actually much scarier if you feel comfortable all the time. It means you are not growing. So don't fear taking the risk. Jump right in. Number seven, mentally strong people do not dwell on the past And this can be really consuming if something really sad or bad, you lost a loved one. You know, there's a lot of big life changes that happen and really consume people. However, it's removing you from today and not allowing you to be present in your life. And that's just, that's the biggest epic loss that I think there could be. So do not dwell on the past. Number eight, mentally strong people do not repeat their mistakes. This is one I need to learn from. So, you know, Some people feel embarrassed that they gave the wrong answer and they 
they learned at a young age that a mistake is so bad. So maybe you're hiding your excuses or your mistakes or burying them because you feel shame. So Amy really dives into, you know, the importance of identifying the mistake understanding it's okay it doesn't make you a bad person however if this situation arises in the future how can we do it differently and that reminds me too of tim's story uh, example of the comeback is not a go back don't go back to that same place again okay number nine mentally strong people do not resent other people's success I talk about this a lot, keeping the focus on you instead of others. Number 10, they don't give up after their first failure. I couldn't agree with this more. Failure is about giving up. There's no such thing as failure. It just pivots along the way. The only way you ever really fail is if you give up. So just don't give up. Figure out a new solution. Figure out a new direction, and you will rise above and become mentally stronger. Mentally strong people do not fear alone time. So apparently this is a hard one for a lot of people. I travel a lot, so alone time is just part of my day-to-day. And over time, I've just become used to it. So that part hasn't been hard for me, but everybody struggles with different things. Maybe you're used to being around people all the time, and maybe it's an, a small practice. You start with just taking a walk each day or meditating and finding ways to be alone so you can really hear your own thoughts, listen to your intuition, and start acting on it because those are great ways to build confidence. Number 12, mentally strong people don't feel the world owes them something. So you find weakness when you start feeling like everyone owes you something or I worked so hard at this promotion. I didn't get it. I'm owed that promotion or I, I, you know, I've been struggling so much and I didn't give up and I still didn't get it. You know, I'm owed this. That is a huge holdback. And that way of thinking can permeate all levels of your life and can be really disruptive. Number 13, mentally strong people do not expect immediate results. I need to make this my new mantra that I'm getting getting rid of that one because I have really high expectations of myself and I want things to happen now, 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 and it never feels like it's happening fast enough. So I'm definitely working on number 13 and giving myself some space to know the results will come and I just need to keep a work in my land, doing my job, and it's going to happen. So I can't wait for you guys to meet Amy next and really learn from her. As she, this, she's an expert on this. She wrote the book. She did the TED Talk, the viral you know articles. She has been teaching a workshop all around the world. She's been delivering keynotes about this. She is going to be able to give you her personal story and the massive adversity that she's overcome and detail some of the things that are, she feels are most important out of the 13 to help you let go of these holdbacks and really step into your power and your strength because everyone can do it. It's a choice. So I can't wait to hear what you think. But before we jump over to Amy, I want to tell you about this new product that I just had delivered to me that is a game changer. As we're all moving to having things delivered to us by Amazon or whoever else, you know, saving time, not having to be out shopping all the time. One thing that has always been a pain for me is, you know, who wants to go pick up tampons? It's just, it's not the first thing you're thinking you're jumping up or wanting to do. But I just found out about Lola. It's a female-founded company, and it offers an amazing product line. The FDA doesn't require brands to disclose a comprehensive list of ingredients in their feminine care products, but Lola does. I just found that out. That's unbelievable. Lola offers complete transparency about the ingredients found in their tampons, pads, liners, and wipes. Major brands use a mix of synthetic ingredients in their products, I mean, rayon, polyester, I don't even know how that's possible. Their products can be treated with chemicals, fragrances, dyes, and Lola products are 100% organic, no added chemicals, no fragrances, no synthetics, and no dyes. It's founded by women for women. I mean, it's just, why wouldn't we do good with every product that we're putting in us, especially this one? So, you know, do good with this purchase for every purchase. Lola donates feminine care products to homeless shelters across the U.S. So that's unbelievable, too. So, I mean, why wouldn't we? It comes right to your home. I mean, you don't even have to go out. And you you can have it delivered to you. You can curate it for the way that you actually want it to be. You know, you can say that you want, um, you know, this kind of absorbency, this quantity, this frequency. That's all up to you. And you can choose what works best for you. 
I mean, I personally, I don't let, love going to the store. I like saving my time. So for me to have this discreet box show up personalized the way that I want, the right variety for my needs, 100% organic, BPA-free tampon applicators, it leaves me worry-free about what I'm putting in my body, and I want that same for you or for your loved one. We all know a woman that definitely needs this. This will take such a, it will be such a nice surprise if you went and took care of this for someone that you love. I really love love the product. I love the convenience and Lola is such a great company doing good in the world. So as always, I want to give you a discount for 40% off all subscriptions. Visit mylola.com and enter confidence 40 when you subscribe for 40% off all subscriptions. Visit mylola.com and enter confidence 40 when you subscribe. I can't wait to hear what you think. All right, we're going to catch up with Amy next. Hang tight. Welcome back. I'm so excited that you're here with me and my friend, Amy Morin. She is the amazing author of 13 Things Mentally Strong People Don't Do. And if you haven't read that book yet, you're probably living under a rock. That book is been published in 36 different languages, and she's had two different iterations of the book come out since its initial launch. She was a USA Today bestselling author, Wall Street Journal bestselling author. She's a psychotherapist, and she's also a college professor at Northeastern University. Amy, what don't you do? <laughs> well, that's what I talk about, what not to do, so that's a good question. <laughs> oh, that was a great lead-in, and I didn't even do that intentionally. So um, let's talk about the 13th things mentally strong people don't do and where did this whole thing come from so it started as an article I was working as a therapist and I wrote uh, a little bit on the side I occasionally would write articles for different publications and uh, 2013 I was actually at one of the lowest points in my life in the the article started out as a letter to myself I had lost my mom when I was 23 when I was 26, my husband passed away suddenly. And in that journey of grief of losing my mom and then becoming a widow at 26, I started studying the people that came into my therapy office because I wanted to know what makes some people stronger than others. How come some people would go through tragedy and and they seem to bounce back faster and better and they still had hope for the future versus other people that stayed stuck. Were you feeling stuck? And I was. And so, you know, after just after losing my mom, it was unexpected and sudden. And, you know, I was only 23, We and I just envisioned it differently. I thought, now, here I am. I'm finally launching my career, and now I won't have my mom here. And, and that's what started this whole thing of thinking, okay, I just want to know on a personal level, how do you go through grief? How do you become mentally strong when you go through hard times? And then certainly when I became widowed at 26, I mean, nobody's widowed at 26. It was the strangest, most surreal experience. Yeah, it was not supposed to happen, obviously. Right, what am I going to do now? You know, all my other friends were just starting to get married and and talking about their lives together. And I think, well, now, you know, to be 26 and widowed, I thought, now what? All these, it wasn't just I lost my husband, but I lost all these dreams that we'd had and all these things we were going to do. And I had to figure out, what do I still want to do? Do I still want to be, we were foster parents. Do I still want to be a foster parent? We were going to adopt. Do I still want to do that? Do I still want to live in the same house? Do I want to, how many of our dreams do I live out and what do I give up? And it was, you know, incredibly tough and I didn't know anybody else who was going through it. I didn't know any widows who were in their twenties. I knew people that were you know, widowed at 80, but nobody that was widowed at 20. And so you I felt just, alone. I was really alone. And so needless to say, I worked really hard on figuring out how do you go through pain our tendency is to try to go around it we don't want to go through it yes <laughs> grief is the process by which we heal you have to go through all that hard stuff and as hard as it is that's what i knew you know i just I knew yeah you from, sound like a psychotherapist right now. imagine that right <laughs> but i knew from the people in my office the people that actually let themselves go through the pain ultimately healed and so i thought okay i have to go through this and then but what does that mean like does that look like just being depressed and locking yourself in a room i mean what does that actually mean it was you know because when we're so uncomfortable with grief and i don't and i do the same thing to other people but friends and family would be like let's go out to dinner and they yeah try to keep distract. you busy and right and they want to distract you all the time and so the tendency i could have escaped i could have found 101 things to do to try to escape the pain but and it wasn't about feeling sorry for myself either but it was about knowing okay this is it's okay to be sad and I had to honor what I lost and face it head on and sometimes it was more about just leaning into the pain and knowing okay it's Friday night and I'm sitting home alone and and that's okay sometimes because it's okay to be sad and it's okay to, to be on the floor crying some days when you don't want to get out of bed 
And but, but then, to- how do you not eat the barrel of ice cream or binge watch Netflix or do something else distracting at home? Well, you know, so I had to figure out. Well, how do I take care of myself, even though this is painful? So I had to exercise. I had to make sure I eat was eating as healthy as I could, and it's tough to sleep. But I had to figure out how do I make myself go to bed instead of just watching TV all night. That would have been much easier. Did you medicate yourself during that time? I didn't. I, my doctor tried to prescribe me some stuff, but at the time I felt like you know I'm not depressed. I'm grieving. And there's a difference. And I didn't want to just like, try to like numb the pain. I just wanted to get through it. And I don't fault people who take antidepressants, but for me at that point, I just felt like this isn't this isn't what I need. And my doctor said, I'll give you sleeping pills. And she was really trying to give me whatever she thought would help. But when starting out a new business, it's a complete pain to get through the LLC part. Taylor Brands makes it 90% easier. It's easy and affordable to get your LLC with Taylor Brands. Taylor Brands offers all the legal requirements for LLCs such as registered agent, annual compliance, EIN, operating agreement, business license and permits, and much more. Taylor Brands walks you through each step of building a successful business and has everything you need all in one place. Bookkeeping, invoicing, business licenses and permits, business documents, bank accounts, and so much more. And our listeners will receive 35% off Taylor Brands LLC formation plans using this link, taylorbrands.com slash confidence. That's T-A-I-L-O-R-B-R-A-N-D-S dot com slash confidence. So get started today with Taylor Brands. When I started podcasting, an online store was the furthest thing from my mind. Now I'm selling my group coaching on the regular, and it is just so easy, all because I use Shopify. (coughs) Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to, did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soaps or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling. Shopify has got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort, thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI powered all-star. I didn't know what I was going to do when I got fired. Launching my own business seemed so intimidating. I didn't know how to set up a website and I really didn't need to. Shopify does it all for you and they make it so easy. It was that breakthrough moment for me that I realized I can do this. I can go to work for myself. Thanks to Shopify. What I love about Shopify is you don't need to have all this technology information ready to, you don't need to know how to plan and run things. You just need to go to the platform, turn it on and know what you're selling. And Shopify is going to help you figure out the rest. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. And Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's and Brooklinen and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries, including your girl right here. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash Monahan, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash Monahan now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash Monahan. No matter what stage you're at, they're going to make it easy. Thank God you didn't take those things. I, I one time in my life went through a tough time and I couldn't sleep and I took those and it's so hard to get off of them. Yeah. Your brain tricks you when it comes time for bed that you have to have it to fall asleep. Right. And I didn't want to get caught up in something like that. And so, you know, I did some other bizarre stuff. I kind of figured out, all right, what do I sell? I didn't need, we had a boat. We don't need a boat anymore. I don't drive a boat. And then I thought, well, what do I want in life? Well, I kind of always wanted a motorcycle, so I went out and got one. You do not look like... I wish you guys could see Amy right now. She's literally like just walked off an ad in Nantucket. It's so adorable. And no, I can't picture this on a Harley. Right? So I got my motorcycle license, and it was something that I did because I thought, you know, I always thought it would be cool to do it, but I probably wouldn't have done it if I was still married because we were doing other stuff. Right. 
Uh, so it was a lot of that kind of just trial and error and figuring out how do I rebuild life? Like who you are yeah, without him. Exactly. Exactly. And now, you know. And you really loved him. I did. I adored him. We'd met when we were young and sort of like grown up together and came into our own, graduated college together and thought, okay, now here we go and launching this life. And how many years ago is this? Um, so this was, he died in 2006. Okay. And so it took years, about four years later, I felt like, all right, I got my life back. It took four years to go through the pain? To really feel like, you know, not just to go through the pain, like it got a little bit easier after one year and by two years it was like, okay, I'm, I'm starting to get there. But, but like year three, I was like, okay, I'm living again. I'm out there doing stuff. And then... And dating again? And, well, you know, my friends would be like, what do you think? You think you're going to get back out there? And at first I was like, no, you know, it's awkward to be like, hey, yeah. I'm a 28-year-old widow. <laughs> And it just wasn't interested in that. But uh, I had a friend that I had known forever, and he knew my story. And we'd, we'd never had any sort of romantic connection, but about four years later, there was a spark. And so wow. we fell in love, and we got married, and I thought, this is great. You know, it's so comfortable. It's you weren't easy. so scared something was going to happen to him? That's the first thing that just popped into my mind. That's scary. Uh, yeah, it, I was. I definitely was. And, uh, you know... Shortly after we got married, his dad had got diagnosed with cancer. Ugh. And at first Awful. the doctors were like, nope, we've got this, no problems, prostate cancer, you're not supposed to die from that. But after about two months, they're like, actually, we don't have this. And they gave him a terminal diagnosis. And I thought, Ugh. this isn't fair. You know, I finally went through all this stuff in my life. I finally feel like I'm back on my feet. Now I'm going to lose somebody else. And he and I had gone, gotten really close over the years. And thought, I know what it's like to lose a parent. I don't want to see Steve lose a parent. And... I just started thinking, this isn't fair. I wanted to dig in my heels and say, I'm done grieving. I don't want to go through this again. Right. And it was then that I thought, all right, well, hosting a pity party isn't helpful. So I wrote that down on a piece of paper. Don't feel sorry for yourself. And thought, all right, that's something that would drain me of mental strength. What else? And so I wrote a whole list. And when I was done, I had 13 things that mentally strong people don't do. And, and these, you pull these things just from your life experience, all the things you've seen and what you've gone through. And what I'd seen in my therapy office, I knew, all right, if people didn't do these certain bad habits, their good habits were much more effective. All these Like years, blaming someone else for all your problems. Right. All these years I had just sort of observed, all right, some, a lot of these people have the same habits, but some people it's more effective than others and other people get stuck. What's the difference? Well, these people that are doing better don't do certain things. And, and so I pulled, I drew from that and came up with this list. And then I thought, well, if it helps me, maybe it will help somebody else. Cause I was reading it over and over and I just found some comfort in it. So I published it online, stepped away from my computer and thought maybe it will resonate with someone. Didn't imagine it would go viral, but 50 million people read that list. 50 million. 50 million. It got picked up by Forbes and got 10 million views there and Business Insider and Success Magazine. And before I knew it, MTV in Finland and CNN in Mexico are calling me to talk about this list. And you had no idea it was going to have this effect. Right. And, and even when it was out there, so basically the list that I published was basically just the list. It didn't give the backstory. And so people thought, this is great. You're a therapist and you've mastered this list and you don't do these things. And for a while, I didn't say anything. What nobody sure. knew. So I'm on. You know, there's an interview where I'm on Fox News talking about this, but they didn't know my father-in-law had passed away four days before. Mm. I'm on national TV talking about this, and I wasn't ready to open the floodgates. Right. But luckily, a literary agent called and said, "You should write a book." And we love that one, but that wasn't luck. You were putting yourself out there with your right. message, and that's how she was exposed to you. Right. And then I, you know, in the book, was sort of able to explain, here's the rest of the story, that I struggle with these 13 things as well, and I have to make a conscious effort to not do these things. But that's the real story, and that's, to me, why the book resonates, is because you're vulnerable in sharing that. Right. And as a therapist, I wasn't used to that. I was always the one listening to people's stories and asking them questions. I wasn't sharing my own. So it was so scary to do that. In fact, I wasn't I going to at first. Even I said to my literary agent, like, I don't know. I don't really want to tell the story. And she said, well, you don't have to, but it would probably give you some more credibility. People might resonate a little <laughs> bit more with your story when you share why you wrote it. And it seems ridiculous now, but at the time I thought, I don't want to tell anybody that I'm struggling with these things too, but I'm 
glad that I did. But that's the common theme in any business, book, anything. When you, and even social media, when you're vulnerable and allow people to see us without the filters and the makeup and the BS or in the hype, that's when people, you really get people's attention because we've all been there. Whatever that pain is might be dressed up differently for someone else, but we've all felt pain. We've all felt shameful, embarrassed, sad, whatever those feelings are. I think that's amazing that you were able to step into that vulnerability because so many people, especially people, in my opinion, in a doctor type profession, a psychotherapist, because the world puts a, you know this pressure that you have to be perfect or that you are assumed. People assume you're you're different than us. Right. I think that's it. Just exactly to be able to now talk about it and say, yeah, you know, we're all human and we all do experience pain. And even if you haven't lost a, a spouse or you haven't necessarily lost a loved one, life is painful at times. We Heck don't really yeah. talk about it. We don't talk about how do you be sad? How do you go through tough times? How do you come out on the other side? Instead, we just want to kind of sugarcoat it or like you say, share on social media, all the happy stuff. We don't want to talk about the, the hard stuff. It's so true. And I, when you were just explaining that, I was thinking of my own son that sometimes I'll find myself trying to distract him if he's getting upset, you know, because I told him, you can't play Fortnite. How? You, do you want to go to the movies? Do you want to go to the beach? I just inherently do it without even thinking about it, which is kind of scary. Well, you know, and I think part of it is knowing, you know, sometimes it's helpful to distract yourself. If you're really, really angry, you distract yourself for a few minutes so you can calm down and then you can make a rational decision. Or if you're so sad that you can't get out of bed and you can't go to work, you probably get involved in an activity laying in bed won't necessarily help you feel better so sometimes distracting yourself if it helps take the edge off is good but i think in today's world we're so used to distracting ourselves with our phones and and to try to do anything we can to not feel anything but numb and because of that we're really uncomfortable when our anxiety goes up or when we're sad we don't know what to do with it so this is a good challenge for everybody and someone gave me this challenge they said heather when was the last time you're in an elevator with someone and you engage in a conversation with them someone you don't know in a building instead of looking at your phone and i thought i had no idea and it was a way for me to distract myself from being in a small space with someone i don't know how can it be that painful? But I found that forcing myself to look at someone and say, hi, how's your day going? It feels weird. Yeah, and I think I think that's a great example because I think we do the same thing, you know, when you're sitting in the airport or you're, you're on a bus or whatever it is, when we're around other people now, we tune them out rather than engage and with other people because it feels awkward or feels uncomfortable or we're so used to not talking to people that everybody's face is buried in their phone. And how much of our life is spent in lines, in airports, you know, just years of our life is spent just, you know, waiting for different things. If we took those moments as an opportunity to connect with someone, say hello, ask how someone else is doing, I wonder how more rich our life could be. Yes. Actually, I wrote an article once about why you should talk to strangers on a plane. Stop they it. This, they did this whole study on how just saying hello to the person next to you, and even if you only engage for a couple of minutes, boosts your mood and it boosts their mood. But yet we have this idea in our head of, you know, I don't want to talk to this person because maybe they don't want to talk to me. Or we're I think what if they're a psycho and then you're stuck in a conversation with a that psycho was, on the whole plane ride? You can't was, escape. That was the other reason why people <laughs> said they don't engage because they thought, you know, I'm sitting next to this chatty person and once I open the floodgates, they're not going to stop talking. But they challenged people who were commuting on the subway or people who were on a plane and they said, just try it for a week. Talk to the person next to you and see what happens. Nine times out of ten, that didn't happen. But then they talked to people too. Well, what do you do? You sit next to somebody who then starts talking and they don't stop. What can you do? Well, maybe after a few minutes you say, you know, I need to listen to something and you put on your headphones or you disengage with them again. You're able to do that. But we're so scared of doing that. We think, I don't want to be rude. I don't want to be offensive. So then we just don't even say hello. It's so bizarre. That's just so our society today. But it's a great challenge. And I think that's so funny that you wrote an article about it. <laughs> I spend way too much time in an airport so right. I, and on a plane. I'm going to have to challenge myself because I carry earbuds with me for the singular effect of letting people know I'm occupied. Right. It's sort of the universal signal for don't talk to me. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, you know I'm obsessed with LinkedIn, uh, but hiring isn't as simple as putting an ad in the paper or posting to a job board anymore. When you're juggling hiring with everything it takes you to grow your business, it's important that you reach the right candidates at the right time. And that's exactly where LinkedIn comes in. I am on LinkedIn every single day. It's the place where business gets done. 
if I mean, you can't believe the amount of people you can reach. You can't believe how fantastic the algorithm is. And this is where everyone is that's working. So you found the place to go if you're looking to hire. Over 600 million members visit LinkedIn to make connections, learn about job opportunities, grow as professionals, promote themselves. Ding, ding, ding. That's me. In fact, LinkedIn members add 15 new skills to their profiles and apply to 35 job posts every two seconds. So this definitely is the place to go if you want to hire someone. This is how they make sure job posts get in front of people with the right hard skills and soft skills to meet your role requirements, like collaboration, work ethic, confidence, adaptability. LinkedIn does the legwork to match you to the most qualified candidates so you can focus on hiring the right person who's going to transform your business. To get $50 off your first job post, go to linkedin.com slash confidence. Again, that's LinkedIn dot com slash confidence to get $50 off your first job post. Terms and conditions can apply. And while you're there, check out my profile, Heather Monahan on LinkedIn. I'm all over it, giving you new ideas and creating new posts every day. So take advantage of this. It's a great deal and you're going to love it. So tell me, what are the what are the few core messages out of the 13 that you feel like resonate the most with people or are the most popular? So the one out of all the 13, the one that people want to talk about the most is number two, which is that mentally strong people don't give away their power. And that one is really about saying, all right, it's up to me how I think, how I feel, and how I behave. Because you can see it in our language that we tend to blame other people. Like, this person makes me mad. Nobody forces you to be mad. You know, you're in control of how you feel. Or we say, you know, I have to to work late or my boss makes me work late. Are you really in control of how you feel, though? Because I mentioned something that upset me that happened to me, that email that I received that was upsetting to me. I didn't know I was controlling myself to feel upset, hurt or sad. You know, and I think it's not about saying, you know, that you have to be happy all the time. But when you get upset, you have options than what you do with it. So when you're angered hits a a 10 on the meter or you feel really sad because somebody hurts your feelings, well, then what are you going to do next? Sort of like, how are you going to respond to it? I think that's a big misconception. People think if you're mentally strong that you don't feel anything, that you're going to not have any pain, that everything just bounces off you. And that's not what I'm trying to convey at all. But it's really about being aware of how you feel, knowing how do your emotions affect you? When are your emotions helpful? When aren't they helpful? And then knowing which kind of action you should take after that. And so you're suggesting to people that it's empowering to think that you play an important role in this. Right, right. And that, you know, you don't have to let other people affect your mood nearly as much as you might think. I talk to a lot of people who will be like, oh, you know, so-and-so is in a bad mood, so it brought me down. Well, don't let it. Figure out how are you going to... How are you going to cope? How are you going to respond to people around you? But you don't have to let them drag you down or hold you back. I say fire those villains because I am one of those people that the same way that if I am in an environment with no sun, it it's like, oh, I feel so down. And then it, suddenly the sun comes out and I'm, well, I'm back. You know, I feel the same way. When I meet someone face to face and I connect with their energy, these are my people. Right. I'm with my crew. Conversely, there is a spin instructor where I work out that for some reason, when I'm around that guy, I feel an energy drain and I just, I can't take his classes. I don't want to run into him, but I mean, it's a visceral effect. Right. And I think to just be aware of how the people around us are affecting us, because I think it's important too. How do you set your life up to be mentally strong if you're surrounded by toxic energy vampires? You can't. Right. And you know, or you have a job that you hate and it's a dead end job, but you like the money. Well, the consequence is you're not going to stay very strong working there. If you're surrounded by friends and family who are always berating you or people that are always really needy and they never give you anything back, it's going to take a toll on you too. Okay. Well, you hit me with the one when you're at a job, when you're making a lot of money, but you're surrounded with negative people and you don't like what you're doing. That was me up until I got fired a little over a year and a half ago. When you're in it, Amy, I don't know, have you ever been in a situation like that before? I've had jobs I didn't like, for sure. But when you're in it, don't you find it hard to see that there's options outside of it? Absolutely. So how how do you get there? How do you get that vision? So I think without getting fired, like me. (laughs) It's about balancing sort of the logic and the emotion. Sometimes you just say, "What would I say to a friend?" Right? That's an awesome perspective. A friend came to me and said, "Gosh, I'm in this job." 
and I, there's nothing else I can do. You'd be like, of course you have options. Of course. But when we're in it, you know, our emotions are so high that sometimes you, your judgment gets clouded. And so just stepping out, or sometimes it's a matter of talking to somebody. If you can't be the voice of reason, you just talk to somebody, Hey, listen to what I'm going through. And, and to really listen to what other people say, your trusted core people, do they have ideas for you? And are you always saying, yeah, but that won't work for me. Or are you really willing to listen and say, you know, what can I do about this? And I'm ready to try to do something different. Right. Because it is so, it's so much better when you get that vision and accept what's going on for what it really is versus having to wait to be pushed out of a situation like that. I would totally recommend option A on this one, people. <laughs> so one of the things I wanted to ask you about, because you had shared with me when we first met, the story of how your book came to be this massive, phenomenal success. Because as you know, myself, my listeners were so interested in creating confidence. And on the outside looking in at you, people could say, well, okay, she had a tough personal situation. However, she's a psychotherapist. She's an amazing author. You know, it it was destined to succeed. But you living this past few years with this book, you didn't always know this book was going to be a runaway success, did you? I did not. So we thought it was going to, my publisher was pretty confident it was going to do well when it came out because 50 million people read the article. The book came I mean, out. of course, you're going to sell 50 million books. Obviously, right? <laughs> and they're going to buy one for a friend. So. But it doesn't really work that way. It didn't work that way. And so it was it was disappointing the first, uh, you know, I remember when it first came out and, and sales were not particularly awesome and thinking, uh-oh. That's and a lot of pressure. It really was. And, you know, we had all these interviews lined up and I was doing as much media as I could, but it wasn't necessarily selling the book. And so after a couple of months, it was sort of like I'd faded in the background. Publicists at the big publishing houses, they are working on other books. And my media interviews and opportunities were were slowing down. And I thought, this is really sad. It could be just ending now. Were you feeling that way? Yeah. So I thought, all right, that was cool. Like I'm a therapist and I got to write a book. That's awesome. But you were just going to go back and be a therapist again. Right. And I thought, that's what I'll do is I'm just going to be a therapist. And that's fine. I thought this was an amazing opportunity that I had. And I had a conversation with my agent at some point. It was probably a year after the book came out. And I said, what do you think? And she said, you know, you did a great job. You did a great job. And I can probably get you a publishing deal with uh, a different publishing house someday if you want to write a different book. That's depressing. Probably not with, with this publisher again. And it was like those words like just clicked. And I thought, okay, challenge accepted. And I just doubled down on the articles that I was writing. By then I was writing for Inc. and Psychology Today. And I thought, you know, I'm just going to keep working at this. I'm not ready to give up. And uh, I just want to see what happens. And so I just kept writing and writing. And before I knew it, articles were starting to get picked up in other places. And Glenn Beck and Rush Limbaugh started talking about it on on their radio shows. And just amazing things started happening. And it was then that I hit the Wall Street Journal bestseller list. It was over a year after the book came out, which is unheard of. Most books hit it the very first week they come out or they don't hit it at all. But I was hitting bestseller lists uh, over a year uh, after the book came out. And I thought, okay, here we go. But what's important to highlight here, in my opinion, is that you reached that pinnacle moment where you could have packed it up and said, okay, I'm going to go back to my original plan A, which is I'm a therapist and forget about this literary world. Or I can take this as the biggest challenge that's been thrown on my plate in a while. And I'm going to jump in and work my butt off and make it happen. And you chose to go for it and take that risk. I did. And I'm so glad that I did. And so are so many people, thankfully, right? That this book helps so many people. Right. And so then as it started then spiraling, you know, word of mouth caught on, I just had to like hit this threshold. And once it hit this certain threshold, then I had enough people out there talking about the book that then it was selling more copies. And so here it is, uh, almost five years later, the book is still in Target, which Target doesn't carry a lot of books and they normally don't carry them that long. And then CVS just, I don't know, two months ago, CVS called and said, we're going to sell your book. And How CVS, many years later from launch are we right now? So I wrote the book and the book hit the shelves at the end of 2014. So it's been almost five years. And you're still getting firsts right now, five years later. Right. That's and amazing. still selling in other languages. We just sold it in simplified Chinese this past week. And so it's still spreading. You haven't really made it until you're in simplified Chinese. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> That's impressive. But as an author, even just to be republished in any other language is a huge accomplishment. Right. To get a call from you know a publishing house in another country and they say, hey, we want to translate your book. 
and you don't have to do any of the work. That's like the most oh, amazing email. Oh, love that email. call. They just, they just take your book, they hire somebody to translate it, they do the cover, and then if there's an audio book, somebody reads it, and, and you don't have to do anything. It's the most amazing thing. What's so amazing about that, and I never thought about this in my old career, and I, I'm interested to know if you thought about it when you were specifically a therapist, or only a therapist, for lack of a better expression, passive income is life-changing when you know my life in corporate america was every day the grind every day get up and there was never a vision in my mind that's what you're supposed to do and that's what you get paid for now that i'm learning the book world and e-learning world and there's so many different products and, and services out there but when you get into this passive income world that's a beautiful business model it is <laughs> to make money in my sleep i'll wake up in the morning and i've sold a course in my sleep or i've managed to you know sell a certain amount of books or i just got another book deal in another language i didn't have to do anything for it i mean it's life changing for sure as a therapist you're on this treadmill you can only see so many people per day right. you can only see a certain amount of clients a week and still be effective and then you just don't have the energy after that to say, okay, now I'm going to go out and get a second job or I'm going to go do something else. You're drained. You have to take care of yourself. CBDistillery.com is giving you an exclusive offer and it's huge right now. You can get up to 30% off everything. If you've struggled with sleep, stress, or pain after physical activity, CBDistillery.com has a targeted plant-powered solution just for you. I love hearing how many of you have seen improvement in your daily life. Thanks to CBD. So if better sleep, more calm, and relief from discomfort after physical activity sounds good to you, you should explore CBD. Don't miss this massive sale and get up to 30% off your order. Visit cbdistillery.com and enter VIP. That's cbdistillery.com and enter VIP at cbdistillery.com. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, and South Dakota. So your compensation is limited. Right. And, you know, as long as I was working as a therapist, that's how it was. Sort of like, if you get sick for a few weeks, good luck. You're not going to make any money if you aren't seeing people. So you feel like you're on this treadmill and it's hard to get off. Did you ever have a vision back then that there was some bigger business plan for you that you did want passive income, that you did want to go there? I did. So strangely, we started, my husband and I had started a uh, online e-commerce jewelry business and it was a drop ship company. I didn't actually physically touch any of the products, but I was able to get them drop shipped from a wholesaler. And that was my first experience with passive income. I thought, you know, I go to work as a therapist all day and I work really, really hard. Meanwhile, at home, my computer just goes cha-ching, 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 because people are buying bracelets and rings and necklaces. I never actually physically handle the products. It took a little bit of work. You had to go in and edit and put in their shipping address, but that was it. And I was making money that way. And so I had that spark and that interest in knowing there's stuff out there, there's opportunities, but I just didn't know what to do or how to turn therapy into something that, that would make more money for me. When you look back on your life now, do those dots connect that it all made sense now why you started as a therapist and then why you got into becoming an entrepreneur and then an author? Yeah, absolutely. And how I've been able to build on things. You know, when I was doing the jewelry business, I learned so much about marketing and that's what how my husband learned how to make websites. Well, he now makes my website and now that I'm an author and I use so many of the marketing things that I learned back then and so many of the writing because writing was just a small side hustle after I was widowed as a way to earn money. But now writing turned into a business that earns me an income. And so it's just so many things. An amazing together. income. Right. It's just, I want people to know how there's a lot of authors out there. There's not necessarily a lot of authors that are profitable or make an amazing income. And it's important to know to reach that tipping point, to put in the level of work that you did and belief in yourself, that seems that was the difference maker. Absolutely. I know it's it's so hard to sell books. They say people read two books a year. You're kid you're kidding the me. The average person, right. So how do you Maybe that's to, our issue, people. How do you get to be <laughs> one of the two books that somebody's gonna read? Wow. And so to get it in the hands of people at, who are actually gonna read it and to, to keep reaching a new audience and to keep it spreading is really it's a tough thing to do. So I won't say it's easy, but I'll say it's possible and it's an amazing adventure if you can do it. So what does the future look like for you now? Um, great question. So my third book just came out, the book about um, women in particular. I wrote the parenting book. So now I... And these are 13 things mentally strong people don't do for women. 
So it's 13 Things Mentally Strong Parents Don't Do is book okay. number two. Book number three is 13 Things Mentally Strong Women Don't Do. Okay. And so people keep asking me, what's your fourth book? And to be honest, the parenting book came out of readers of my first book kept saying, how do we teach kids how to be mentally strong? So I thought, oh, makes sense to write the parenting book. And then after the parenting book came out, readers kept saying, well, what about women? We have so many examples of mental strength, but they're usually a Navy SEAL. Or we talk about elite athletes and right. they're men. And I thought, oh, you're right. So I'll write the book for women. And so now I get lots of other questions. I have so many people say, can you write one for entrepreneurs? Can you write one for uh, for teachers? You're so qualified to do the entrepreneur one. I think that's a great one. I think so too. So I'm, I'm, I'm actually meeting with my publisher soon and I think we'll talk more about what's next. What do I do next? How do I keep spreading this message without watering everything down? And, and I don't want to repeat anything I've done. I want to do something new to reach a new audience and make sure that it's useful and helpful for them. Will you be afraid to take a risk and reinvent yourself yet again because you've had massive success? Will that be too much pressure to try to completely do something different? I don't think so. I think at this moment, I think, you know, I never imagined I'd be speaking and doing online courses and all of that, but I've just been open to opportunities and saying, let's, let's see what happens next. But I don't have a a really clear plan. I know a lot of people think you need a super clear plan and you need to know what you're going to do next. But I think for me, if I had said, this is what's going to be next and I followed that path, I would have missed out on the stuff that came along. You would have stayed a therapist for your entire career. I also think what you just described, that is being an entrepreneur, is moving forward not knowing what the next step is. Moving forward in the dark is really, that's the life of being an entrepreneur. That's what I found. Yeah, absolutely. And knowing that sometimes your path may not take you to where you envisioned anyway, but to be open to to knowing and what are people saying and and when you open one door, then what else is going to open and to just keep keep going. And when you were a child, what did you think you were going to be when you grew up? I was going to be a doctor. Even when I went to college, that was my passion was I thought I'm going to be a doctor and I realized no I, I want to help people but I don't want to you know get into the blood and guts and gory of being a doctor I'm not interested in that it took a bit to come to that decision of you know there's other ways to help people and without becoming a medical doctor and you definitely achieved that I mean the amount of people you've helped with this book alone is just it's, it's amazing it's overwhelming I get emails from people in other parts of the world who are they, and they'll send me a picture of somebody reading the, reading my book on the beach in Egypt and I just think, how did this, how did that come to be my life? Is it the most amazing feeling, though, when you get these heartfelt notes from people? It is. And it just really opens my eyes how a lot of other countries don't have access to, to be able to talk to a therapist. They don't talk about mental health. Right. They have no idea. And the emails I get from people that will say, you know, this has been so helpful to me. Thank you. Uh, is worth so much. So living a purpose and passion-driven life for you is really... I'm everything, right? I mean, because you're helping people. That's been your goal since you were a child. Right, absolutely. And I just, I never dreamed that this would be the way that I get to help people, but I'm so glad that it is. So when you look back over your entire life, I'd love to ask all my guests this. When was the moment in your life that you felt you really struggled with your confidence the most? Oh, probably like middle school, junior high. It's shocking to me how many people say that. Yeah, I was the you know the the really chubby shy kid that sat in the back of the class and never spoke, I, like never said a word. Ever. I can't believe this. <laughs> I'm in shock. And it was so shy. And uh, you know, I used to have a teacher, and my face would turn bright red. And so the fact that I public am a public speaker now is just nothing I would have ever imagined either. But if the teacher called on me, like my face would just instantly turn red. And I hated talking to the point that even in high school, my English teacher would read my papers for me because I didn't dare read them in front of the class. So. And now you have a TED Talk that has over 9 million views. Right. So how did you go from that child to the TED Talk woman? You know, going through the, the tough times that I went through, one thing it taught me was it's not really about me. It used to be when I would step up on a stage, if I was going to step up in front of the class for a project, I was just thinking, oh gosh, everybody's looking at me and they're going to know I'm really nervous and they're staring at me. And after my mother passed away, I wanted to give the eulogy at her funeral. And I thought... Wow, that was really brave. It was, but I thought, it's not about me. I don't care if people are staring at me or if they know that I... It was about her. It was about making sure that people heard the message that I wanted to talk about with her. And like it was like a light switch flipped in me for as far as public speaking is concerned to say it's not about me and if I look like an idiot up there, it's more about am I conveying the message and helping the audience. So now that I can think about that, public speaking isn't a big deal anymore. Okay, this is so funny and embarrassing, but what you just 
explained is so beautifully well said. I couldn't agree with you more. However, the way I've always explained it is so terrible. I've always said, it's not about you. No one's looking at you. They're all looking at their phone scrolling on Instagram. Right. You know, but right. so I, I've always seen it. Yeah, it's not about you. And we think the world's looking at us. But I like the way that you articulate that so much better because it is about the message. It is about making sure people knew who your mother was and, and what she represented and, and, and all of those memories. So I really like how you articulate that. But I do see the other side of it, too. Sometimes the challenge is trying to get anyone to pay any attention right, to Right, right. But I think a lot of us have that fear sometimes that we're being judged. People are looking at us, that they're thinking about us, that they're critiquing us. But the truth is most people aren't thinking about you nearly as much as you think that they are. It's so true. I don't know why we all actually believe that when you think about it. Right. We think, you know, everybody's <laughs> judging us. Like, no, they have better things to do than sit around and think about you. So aren't you so proud of yourself now when you sit to think about that child that you were and that you would turn red in the face to even answer a question and now that you take these massive stages? I am. I have to sort of pinch myself and I'll think, is this really my life? Am I really doing this? And it's almost like because I'm not terrified and because I dare to do it, I just have to take a moment sometimes and be like, I'm really doing this. And you don't get nervous when you get up on stage? You know, I get more excited than nervous. Like sometimes I still get some jitters, but I have fun while I'm up there, which I didn't even know was possible. (laughs) It's unbelievable what can happen when you reframe something, which is really what it sounds like empowered you to to reach this level of success with speaking. But sometimes it's just conquering the fear, taking this that first stage and realizing I didn't die. I, I made it through. Right. Anxiety is uncomfortable, but it's not the end of the world. And when you face it regularly, you think, oh, yeah, OK, that's tolerable. I can do it. Right. It's temporary. This too shall pass and we are going to make it through. Right. So if you have not read the book yet, it's 13 Things Mentally Strong People Don't Do. Please get it. It makes the world a better place the more people that we have understanding that they can be empowered to manage themselves. Absolutely. Amy, thank you so much for coming on. I appreciate it immensely. Thanks for having me. All right. Stay tuned. Hang with me. So I hope you enjoyed meeting Amy as much as I did. I really got so much from her. She is a wealth of knowledge. Her book is phenomenal. Definitely check it out. 13 Things Mentally Strong People Don't Do. Dropping those bad habits make all the difference instead of focusing on what we can do to get better, which is a completely different way of thinking for me, and it definitely works, that's for sure. So definitely try to drop some bad habits this week, even if it's just for seven days. Pick whichever one that you you want to rip out of your life and see how much stronger you get. Amy knows what she's talking about. She's dropping some serious knowledge. Okay, so now on to the questions that I've had sent in. And this is a lot of this. This first question seems to be a lot about the speaking business. So this woman is asking me, approximately how long should your reel be? I saw Kendra's was over 10 minutes. She's referencing um, Kendra Hall's episode where she talked to us about how to become a public speaker and how she becomes confident on stage, et cetera. So listen, here's the thing. There's no hard and fast rule. I was told it had to be 30 minutes. But then talking to Kendra, you know, Kendra, when she first started out, she just did a a reel that was a few minutes. My reel was only five minutes when I first put one together because that's all the material that I had, right? So I, you know, you want to be able to show that you have a presence on stage, what your message is about, what problem you're solving, and include testimonials. Those are, those are the keys. But start where you need to at first, and you can always grow it over time and improve it over time, which you should, which we all should as, you know, in any business. That doesn't have to be speaking alone. Whatever your highlight reel is, you always want to get more reviews, more recommendations, and build those into whatever packaging that you're using. What is a realistic expectation for number of speeches to book in the first year? So I don't really believe in this kind of stuff, a realistic expectation. It depends if you want to go all in. It depends what you want to achieve. I believe in going big. So to me, my realistic expectation is it's massive. I want to achieve so much and I love speaking and I've been having a lot of success with it. So I don't say, I might say to myself, I need to book a minimum of two speaking engagements a month just to plan ahead for myself. But to me, 
you know, I don't think there's an expectation on it. it. It's more about what am I willing to do work-wise to put the work in, to make the contacts, to send out the pitches. It's all a function of the work that you're putting out, what you'll get back, making sure you've got a good reel, making sure you've got a good message, a good kit. You've got a ton of testimonials and then connecting with those right people ahead of time. It, you've got to get people, they want to have to want to hear your message, believe in your message, believe in and trust you, whether you are referred to them or it's your testimonials or your reel. And then that has to align with their meeting. So there's a number of different things that have to occur. But I don't have an expectation for number of speeches. It's really, you know, it's up to how much work you want to put into it and how hard you're going to try. Number three, is it rude to have an assistant reach out on your behalf? I don't I don't think so. Absolutely not. I do it both ways. Have an assistant reach out, but I would also reach out. If I see an opportunity, I'm on my computer and, and I notice that there's a big event coming up, I'm not going to wait to hand that off to an assistant. I'm going to jump on right away. And what I do, because I believe timing is of the essence, and if I'm seeing something, I, somebody else is seeing it too, right? I can't be the only person. So I jump right away on something like that. I just saw that there was a really big women's conference coming to Florida, and I didn't know about about it. So the first thing I did was I went to the, the page. I went to About Us. I want to find the board of directors, the staff. I want to see who the person is in charge of the event planning. No one had that title. So the next thing I, I shifted to is I have this software, which um, I was introduced to through a good friend I met on LinkedIn called Seamless AI. And what I do is I go into that software. I type in those people's names. I go into LinkedIn. It overlays on top of LinkedIn. And then and it gets me their email. Somehow it's able to pull through LinkedIn their email addresses. And then I email each one directly asking for help. I'm not sure if you're the right person to contact. However, uh, you know, here's the value that I would bring. Here's why I would help you promote the event. Here's the reason why it's going to have impact. Here's why it makes sense for you. Here's why it's great for you, blah, blah, blah. And then I send it out that way. So I don't think there's anything wrong with having an assistant. And that's one approach. But I also would not use that as the only approach, especially as you're building your business. Okay. Um, if you could go back and start over again in creating your speaking business and brand, would you change anything? I mean, the only thing that I would change is I didn't know in the beginning that the speaking business was going to be my primary revenue stream. That's my largest stream. I had no idea. So I guess what I would have done earlier is I would have spent more time leaning into sending out pitches, which I wasn't doing because I was working on, you know, setting up the podcast or I was working on my second book or I was working on promoting my first book. You know, I had so many different things going on and you just learn as you go. So I don't beat myself up over that. It, you know, if I could go back, I would just sent out more pitches earlier on, but live and learn, right? We just got to keep on going. Okay. What has been the most challenging aspect of the business for you? The most challenging um, aspect of the business for me is every time I'm looking to do something new, I have to teach myself how to do it and I have to figure it out. And, you know, that sometimes takes time. It's, it's sometimes frustrating. So, you know, it's scary. And, and frankly, you know, trying to connect those dots when you hear there's an opportunity and, and then you'll have a dialogue with someone and then they go dark and then you're trying to reach out, but not annoy them. But you want to make sure you get booked before their event or, you know, it's these interesting nuances that are the same in any business. But when you feel like you're under that um, that new umbrella, that new industry that you're not, you know, I don't have millions of contacts in this space. I'm learning them and I'm developing them. However, I came from a career of 20 years in one industry where I had millions of contacts. So it just makes it a little bit more challenging. But I also know that I, I was able to do it one time, so I can definitely do it again. And you can too. It's just about putting the time and effort in. Okay, so then I'm going to flip over to something else. This is kind of interesting. I was on a show, um, Cal Fussman's show. He's a friend of mine who has a great uh, podcast. And he had me on. And when I was on his show, he asked me a lot about sales and um, sales leadership. And he really got into the sales aspect of um, my career. So this is great. So I got this note from someone. I, I'll leave their name out of it. But I want, I want to share this story with you. Um, um, Heather, I'm sure you get these a lot, et cetera, et cetera. I'm um, an executive director of a nonprofit and heard you on Cal's show. Um, 
every year we take our team on a trip from Washington to South Dakota, and we don't have a large budget for it. Um, but this year we were intense and a horrible weather alert came, tornado winds. It was a major crisis. Um, flooding occurred. I had to bring everyone to the nearest city to get hotel rooms for the team. And I remembered the story you told on the podcast about appearances and about asking for discounted rooms. And I did just that, what you suggested, and we got more than 40% off each room and free breakfast. I would have never thought to do this if you hadn't taught, taught me on the podcast. So um, he says, it seems trivial, but I have a whole team and we were so excited to be able to get in and be safe and then be able to get back to work. Um, thank you so much. So what I shared on that on that um, podcast I was on and I want to share now in case you didn't hear it is that, you know, number one, in any situation, everything's negotiable. And that goes for hotel rooms, that goes for restaurants. I mean, that really goes for everything. So this idea that, oh, I walked into a hotel and it's too expensive, you know, that's on you to say, Okay, uh, Mr. Front Desk Manager, I I would love to stay here. However, that's a bit out of my price range. I is there's something that you can find for me in this price range? I know you can do it. You know, and then if you get no, you ask, well, is there someone else I could speak to that maybe could approve that? You know, who would be the person that has that ultimate decision making ability? And I've found myself in situations like this many times. My son and I one time were in Canada and it was freezing and we were told a hotel was sold out and I asked for the manager and I explained my situation and I asked for his help. And they always have rooms that they hold back. That's just the nature of the business. Or, you know, whether it's you're going in for uh, dinner and the reser- you didn't make the reservation and you told all your friends you had, you know, I have in the past walked up and said, yes, Monaghan, it's party of four and they'll you know look at me but if you approach things really from a confident standpoint these places always keep tables back they always keep you know an opportunity to in case someone important comes in and 99% of the time they're going to help you out because just like us they're normal people usually and it's just about asking and, and going up and being your most confident self while being nice and smiling you know and everything else but it's about giving it a shot and I'm so glad to hear that gentleman was able to pull that off for his team I can't wait to hear what you can pull off. So thank you for being here again with me this week. If you would please share the podcast, subscribe, rate, and review. I know it gets so old hearing that, but it really helps so much. And I'm so grateful for you being here each week with me on this journey. And I can't wait to see you next week. And give up those negative habits this week for seven days. Let's do it together. Hi, I'm here to tell you about a new podcast that I am so excited about, Negotiate Your Best Life, hosted by Rebecca Zung, a part of the Yap Media Network. As a globally renowned narcissist negotiation expert and an attorney recognized by U.S. News as a best lawyer in America, Rebecca shares her invaluable insights and strategies for navigating life's toughest negotiations. By drawing from her own experiences and the wisdom of her high-profile guests, such as Bob Proctor, Mark Victor Hansen, John Gordon, and Rebecca delivers empowering advice that will inspire you to reclaim control of your life. Negotiate Your Best Life is all about how to negotiate your way to greatness. She provides practical guidance on how to break free from toxic relationships, stand up against injustice, and transform chaos into freedom, possibility, and purpose. Many times, the first negotiation you do is with your own in the morning. In the morning is when you wake up, and that's when Negotiate Your Best Life is time for you. It's about to find your way to greatness, conquering obstacles, and creating the life you truly deserve. Get ready to slay thrive and unlock your full potential. Don't believe me? I'm going to go ahead and share some of the reviews that are out there so you can hear and you can believe too. You have helped me so much these last few weeks. I was with a narcissist for two years. She drove me to the point I wanted to take my own life. Listening to you has made a massive difference and now I know what I'm with. Thank you, Rebecca. Now the recovery. Thank you for gifting the knowledge to believe in myself again. You have unknowingly helped me legally represent myself through criminal, federal, and civil court proceedings with a narcissist. There would be so many people around the world that you're helping without even knowing like me. You saved my life. Emma, 
35 years old, Australia. If you are ready to stand up against injustice and transform the chaos in your life into freedom, possibility, and purpose, then check out Negotiate Your Best Life now. Subscribe to Negotiate Your Best Life with Rebecca Zung on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform.